The following AGIO-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. My name is Amy Board, and I am one of the producers of Bloodstream Media and your host for today's episode. What goes into a good, compelling story? Is telling your story the same if it's told in front of hundreds of people or just your physician in a clinic room? Well, today we have the opportunity to hear from two rare disease patients who are accomplished advocates. We'll hear their ups and downs with self-advocacy and the steps they include when crafting their story. Bianca Bassett is a disability consultant from Australia. She's also living with PK deficiency. Her book, Walking My Path, Building Memories, has been described as brave, resilient, and self-deprecating as she's moved to fight to stand up for something that she believes in. Our other guest is Patrick James Lynch. Patrick is a filmmaker and a patient advocate who lives with severe hemophilia A. He is the co-founder and CEO of Believe Limited, a content agency that produces entertainment to affect change. Patrick and Bianca are both professional storytellers, and on this episode, we'll hear the unique ways both of them craft their stories, but more importantly, as rare disease patients, how they prepare to advocate for themselves. Welcome to the podcast, Bianca and Patrick. I'm so excited to speak with you today. You're both accomplished self-advocates and professional storytellers. I'm so interested to hear how you craft your stories. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. It's very early here in Australia, but I'm awake and ready to go. So my name is Bianca. I, yeah, I was born in 1980, diagnosed at six weeks old with PKD. And back then it was super rare and no one knew anything about it. So it was a bit overwhelming for my parents, I think. To begin with, but I've been really fortunate to have supportive parents and a supportive family and lots of amazing people around me my whole life. I always things that are really tough with PKD, um, but all in all, I've had a great journey with the disease. I've learnt lots. I've met so many incredible people because of the PKD. I get to do podcasts like this. It's opened up a whole world, meeting people from all over the world with PKD, which is exciting, especially growing up, not knowing anybody in Australia. We were told that there was only a few cases and my parents were told when I was born at that stage I was the 12th known case in the world and we know that those stats are very different now. But back in 1980 when we didn't have a lot of the communication that we have now, it was very rare. So to, to know people that have the disease and have been on the journey and can share stories with and learnings with is incredible. This episode is about storytelling and the power of storytelling. It's fun to say that you are an accomplished self-advocate and you're a professional storyteller, but let's go back to the beginning. When was the moment you realized that your story was powerful? That's a really great question. I think growing up with it, I didn't understand until I was much older. And I guess I was really lucky to have, like I said, my parents were amazing And growing up in school, obviously, I was a little different. I was having blood transfusion. I was spending a lot of time in hospital, which was really confusing. 
for a lot of the children at school. And I think they didn't know how to process it. So my mum actually came in and talked about PKD at the school. So it brought our community all on board with my journey, which was really great. I think it wasn't until six years ago when, unfortunately, one of the things that happens with PKD is that we're very susceptible to infection. For me, I've had sepsis five times now. And the last time I got a sepsis infection, my left leg above the knee. So I'm now an amputee as a secondary result of PKD. Uh, It's not really common, but sepsis comes with its own complications. Mm -hmm. And since then, because, so I've gone from having a non-visible disability to having a Mm. visible disability So that journey has been really interesting and it's almost like now my voice has been accelerated because people can see something's wrong. So they want to talk about the amputation, which then leads me to the PKD, which is far more interesting, let me tell you. (laughs) And people actually find it really interesting, but because they don't see it, yeah, it's a lot harder to communicate and a lot harder for people to understand too. I think our symptoms and our struggles aren't necessarily seen. So that can be really difficult for a lot of people when we're tired, when we have bone pain, we can't get out of bed. We're obviously susceptible to lots of things. So we're going to pick up everything that's going around. Yeah, people don't see that, which I always found really hard. But now, yeah, since I lost my leg, I think the voice, my voice and my story has definitely accelerated. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Can you put words to what it was like attempting to self-advocate for yourself before the amputation? Did you feel like you had any success at it? What was your kind of attitude towards it? Well, I I think I had success in, I've always been pretty positive and I've always, we've had to learn to, I've had to learn to self-advocate, obviously, with doctors and um, specialists especially if you get a new one, you've got to retell your story and try and explain it. And a lot of people don't understand what PKD is because the disease is so rare and unknown and it sits on a shelf in a book that they spent five minutes at medical school on. It's obviously people are learning a lot more about it now, which is amazing because there's some really incredible work happening all over the world. Growing up, it was, yeah, it was really hard to advocate because how do you tell a story that people can't see and people can't relate to. It wasn't, it's never been something that people have been able to relate to because it's really uncommon. 
And so when people can't see themselves in your story, it's really difficult for them to understand and empathize and I don't know, have a level of wanting to learn more. People want to engage with things that are going to benefit them and that's just how the world is and that's okay. I ended up taking a little bit of a different approach and really advocated for blood donation. And because that's a way that people can engage in the process and they and it teaches them to understand why blood donation is so important. People have this misconception that blood donation is so important for people who are in car accidents or some sort of trauma or cancer patients, but actually there's a whole world of people out there with blood diseases that rely on these beautiful gifts that people give and it's quite literally life-saving. I wouldn't be here, my kids wouldn't be here without the um, the generosity of many communities all over the world donating blood. So I did use that approach quite a lot. Patrick, you're an accomplished self-advocate. You're a professional storyteller. Have you always been? When was that moment that you realized that your story was powerful? I didn't always think of myself as a powerful self-advocate or storyteller growing up. Uh, and before I even really answer that, to be honest, I still get anxious and, and nervous about advocating for myself. It does not come naturally or easily for me, even if it looks that way to other people. For me, it's a matter of clarity, focus, and individual objectives. But to answer your question more directly, when my brother passed away from hemophilia-related bleeding and I started to share what happened to him and my take on it, I continually heard people saying, you know, your story is powerful. It demonstrates the importance of patient buy-in, of self-care, reaching young people, and so on. And then I realized, oh, I could use my story as a tool for change in a pretty powerful way. So that's kind of on like a, a macro community-wide advocacy front. And on a more personal, intimate level, when I moved from New York to California and rolled off of my Cobra from my parents' insurance, I had some major issues with the insurance provider here in California where I live And it took dozens and dozens and dozens of phone calls and copious note-taking to finally get a reasonable result. I'll spare the details because it's hyper-specific to me and hemophilia. But what I realized then is that if I was facing all of these challenges as a college-educated, self-employed, single, white male without a complicated medical history outside of hemophilia, that there must be so many other people with hemophilia who are facing these challenges and have worse outcomes as a result. So it also taught me that when I do address my individual advocacy needs, I'm not only helping myself, but I'm helping those who come after me as well. How, how do you categorize self-advocacy? That's a great question. And yes, I think there are many different forms of self-advocacy, just as I think there are many different versions of, quote, tell your story. No one has just one story or one version of their story. And no one version of your story works in every environment, for every audience, for every objective you may have. So for me, it comes down to what am I advocating for or what am I telling this story for? And if I'm asking myself the right questions, that's gonna set me up for whatever this particular need is. So first and foremost, what am I seeking to accomplish? 
What do I want my story to accomplish? What am I advocating for? Sounds kind of obvious, but sometimes, especially if we're in a crisis or if things are just moving so quickly, taking the time to slow down and answer that question first and foremost is sometimes the most important next thing to do. Then once that's clear, the remaining questions kind of ladder down from that. Okay, well, what do I need from the listener, the person I'm speaking to right now? What do I need from them? What does my listener need from me? How can I understand, help my listener understand my experience and my point of view so that they'll be inclined to support what my ask is? And then finally, just that, what is my ask? What is the call to action? What is my goal here? If you answer those questions, then that's gonna dictate what of my story do I need to share and how for this intended purpose, but it's never gonna be the same. What have you learned about becoming an effective self-advocate? I have learned to just tell your story from the heart. Just be really authentic with it. We all have stories to tell, every single one of us. And that lived experience is how we learn about our communities, about fellow humans. It's how we connect. Yeah, you've just got to say it how it is. I used to spend a lot of time preparing for keynotes and delivering things for different audiences. And a mentor of mine said, why are you wasting your time? Your story? Just get out there and tell it. And it was far more powerful when I just went out and told my story than what it was having something. Bianca, what's different for you in terms of preparing, doing a keynote like that, telling your story in front of maybe hundreds of people and your physician in a clinic? When I go to my physician, they think they know everything, whereas an audience, no, they don't know anything. (laughs) So trying to get the physician to understand that I know my story and I know my body and I know... um, things about me that nobody does. And that's something that I've learned over time is to really trust your intuition. If there is something wrong, you really need to push and advocate for that. I've been very fortunate to have great GPs in my life that I think is key. If you can get a really great GP that advocates for you, that absolutely helps as well. That's helped me. Yeah. An audience they know they don't know anything and they're there to learn and they're really open to learning. Whereas a physician, sometimes they're a little bit tougher to to learn and educate and have some tougher conversations with. That's interesting because you're right. Many times uh, a physician isn't in that room necessarily to learn. They're, they're there to listen, to say something, but not necessarily to learn. What goes into becoming an effective self-advocate. I mean, you ha- now you have this story and you spoke to it a little bit. What goes into it? Being clear on like, what is your objective and being a self-advocate? And then I guess, you know, to talk a little about what does it mean to tell an effective story, whether we're talking about PKD or hemophilia or nothing to do with health, good stories are good stories. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, We meet the main character. We find out what's going on in that character's stage of life and a problem is introduced, right? The middle, okay, we're on an adventure now. We're trying to solve the problem that was raised in the beginning. And usually there's some moments and characters along the way in the adventure who influence our pursuit of solving that problem. And then the end is either our resolution or in the case of advocacy, the call to action. Okay, I've now told you this story. And now that this story is coming to a close, here is what I need from you, listener. So I think what goes into being a good advocate 
is much the same as what goes into being a good storyteller. And it comes down to specificity. What am I tr- seeking to accomplish? And then how am I breaking it out? What's the beginning? What's the middle? And what's the call to action? What am I seeking from this person? Tell me what it's been like crafting your story over the years. You spoke about a little bit about what goes into making a compelling story, but I'm sure it has shifted and changed. So what has it been like? What went into it? How long did it take? Where did you begin and and where have you grown to? So I appreciate you specifically asking how long does it take to craft a story? Because I know for me and I imagine for listeners, it can be intimidating or overwhelming at the beginning of, oh, I've got to tell my story for a thing. What am I going to do? And very quickly, my mind can get flooded and I have to kind of slow myself down and remember, okay, well, hold on. What's, what are the specifics here? Is this a 30-minute presentation that I'm doing or is this a five-minute meeting with you know, a, a state or federal representative around some specific policy thing that may impact my life? Is this a 30-minute meeting with the school for my child to try to help get an individual education plan in place based on their condition? Okay, I may need a little bit more for that story. I try to think about what's the set and setting and allow that to dictate how much prep do I need to do. I still get nervous and anxious about telling my story and and being an advocate. And for me, where I feel that most intimately is not when it's a big room with a lot of people and a varied audience, but for me, it's when it is that one-on-one clinic, intimate setting with an expert doctor or clinician of some kind who's an expert in their thing over there. They're They're using terms I don't necessarily understand. I can get very intimidated in those settings. So what I have found is even just take, I have one of these next week, a week from when we're recording. And my wife, a couple of days ago, was asking, do you want to go through the bullets? Because I know, even at my age, with the experience I have doing this, if I don't go in there with some bullet points of here are the things I want to be sure to ask about, I can very quickly defer to kind of like a patriarchal sense of medicine and just like listening to the doctor or the provider and then just like almost taking what they say as a skin over what my experience is rather than first trying to make sure I articulate the unique experience I'm having and then have them from there feedback, ask questions, probe. I'm almost trying to justify them or, or, or legitimize them in some way as opposed to being the patient and making sure I can clearly speak to what my experience is as a patient. But if I don't take even just 10 minutes to make sure those four bullet points that I want to hit are listed in my phone or on a little piece of paper. And that's all it needs to be for the case of a doctor's meeting. I don't need, it's not a 90 minute keynote presentation. I just need to make sure those critical points are down somewhere. And for me, maybe that's 10 minutes, maybe 15. I was going to share just a little story, just an example. So I had a call with my hematologist last week. It's every six months or so we catch up over the phone and I've had all these really weird symptoms. I'm now 42. I've had a bit of a rough life. I now only have one leg, so I'm falling apart a little bit. Anyway, so I've had some crazy symptoms and they've sent me for lots of blood tests and I've had an MRI in my brain. And I said to him, I said, I'm 42. Could I be in perimenopause? These, a lot of these symptoms are perimenopausal symptoms headaches, itchy skin, insomnia. And he said, well, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) So they've automatically made the assumption that all of these symptoms could be connected to the PKD. We're actually, I'm just perimenopausal. I'm a 42-year-old woman. (laughs) So they don't know everything. (laughs) Have you 
ever minimized your story or your symptoms in a physician's office and regretted it later? Early on, yes. Yeah, really early on. It's, I don't know if it's the Australian that she'll be right. We all say that. It'll be okay. We'll, we'll be fine. Uh, I did used to do that. And then it wasn't until I think it was about my second time, the second time I had sepsis. And I felt okay, but my, my blood pressure was crazy. My temperature, even though I felt okay, no, I'm fine. But uh, I actually really wasn't. So since then, I've actually learned to, if I have a temperature, that could actually be something serious. Even though I feel like I have a bit of a temperature, I need to take that seriously. So I do now and I get checked out. Tell me what it's been like crafting your story over the years. You spoke about a little bit about what goes into making a compelling story, but I'm sure it has shifted and changed. So what has it been like? What went into it? How long did it take? Where did you begin and and where have you grown to? So I appreciate you specifically asking how long does it take to craft a story? Because I know for me, and I imagine for listeners, it can be intimidating or overwhelming at the beginning of, oh, I've got to tell my story for a thing. What am I going to do? And very quickly, my mind can get flooded and I have to kind of slow myself down and remember, okay, well, hold on. What's What are the specifics here? Is this a 30-minute presentation that I'm doing or is this a five-minute meeting with you know, a, a state or federal representative around some specific policy thing that may impact my life? Is this a 30-minute meeting with the school for my child to try to help get an individual education plan in place based on their condition? Okay, I may need a little bit more for that story. I try to think about what's the set and setting and allow that to dictate how much prep do I need to do? I still get nervous and anxious about telling my story and, and being an advocate. And for me, where I feel that most intimately is not when it's a big room with a lot of people and a varied audience, but for me, it's when it is that one-on-one -on -one clinic, intimate setting with an expert doctor or clinician of some kind who's an expert in their thing over there. They're gonna, they're using terms I don't necessarily understand. I can get very intimidated in those settings. So. What I have found is even just take, I have one of these next week, a week from when we're recording. And my wife, a couple of days ago, was asking, do you want to go through the bullets? Because I know, even at my age, with the experience I have doing this, if I don't go in there with some bullet points of, here are the things I want to be sure to ask about, I can very quickly defer to kind of like a patriarchal sense of medicine and just like listening to the doctor or the provider and then just like, almost taking what they say as a skin over what my experience is rather than first trying to make sure I articulate the unique experience I'm having and then have them from there feedback, ask questions, probe. I'm almost trying to justify them or, or, or legitimize them in some way as opposed to being the patient and making sure I can clearly speak to what my experience is as a patient. But if I don't take even just 10 minutes to make sure those four bullet points that I want to hit are listed in my phone or on a little piece of paper. And that's all it needs to be for the case of a doctor's meeting. I don't need, it's not a 90 minute keynote presentation. I just need to make sure those critical points are down somewhere. And for me, maybe that's 10 minutes, maybe 15. And so you're saying your experience as a patient in, in actuality is storytelling in a physician's office, that that is important for them to know. And it takes prep going in there, your experience as a patient. Talk about that a little bit. Because it feels different than telling your story, storytelling, you know, that we hear. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, if I'm going to lobby with a government official about how this certain bill 
would enable access to medicine that currently I don't have access to, then I'm going to be more cognizant of everything that goes into how I present my story down to what I'm wearing, mm-hmm. right? The word choice that I use, the way I try to make them feel comfortable because I, I'm doing a little bit of sales work, right? I'm trying to get their support for policy that's going to change my life as a patient. That is a much different experience than being in the clinic room where I'm not doing any of that salesy stuff. This is just about me as a human being in a very intimate way, which is why I think for me, that's far scarier than put me in front of as high ranking and whatever as you want to go talk about policy, but put me in the room with my own doctor and it's like, oh, this is about me. But here's the thing, and this is what I'm saying this to myself right now in addition to any of the, anyone listening. If we don't tell our doctors about our experiences outside of the clinic, they don't benefit from that data. And it is data. They can take all the measurements they want. They can take all the blood draws they want. They can analyze all of that stuff in the clinic, all that clinical assessment stuff. But if they don't have the patient-reported experiences of what happens to us day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, and all the ways that PKD or hemophilia or whatever your condition is threads through and impacts your life, if they don't get that, and they they can only get that from you in the room with them. And if they don't get that, they don't have that to use when they're trying to help work with you on what's the right kind of treatment regimen self-care practice that will best suit your life. That is information off the table unless you put it on the table. And it it has to be you. There's no one else who can do it. There's no one else can do it. They, they can't know your experience unless you say something. It's one of the hard truths about being a rare disease patient is that you must be your own best advocate. It's just the nature of the thing. You have a wonderful personality and oh. an outgoing personality. <laughs> Do you need to have an outgoing personality to be an effective self-advocate? No way. No, we, the world is made up of all kinds of personalities and all kinds of people. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us amazing. No, I think we, you can, everyone has special little gifts in how they communicate. You've just got to find the best way you communicate and if you don't if you're not confident and you don't do it well there's so many advocates and we have such a great community in PKD now all over the world and technology right how great is that so even if you don't have a advocate where you live you can get someone on a zoom or a teams call or something that can be there to back you up and support you in in what you need just find your style find your way you're a performer, you're a showman. Do you have to be that? Do you have to have those qualities in order to self-advocate? Absolutely not. No, you don't have to be outgoing or a show person. I don't I, I don't remember if I've ever been called a showman before, Amy, so I'll have to, I don't, I don't know what that means for me. But in fact, I would argue that there are ways in which that can work against me. For example, if I'm underprepared, which really means being unclear on my ask or the need from the person I'm speaking to, then I can lean on my charming personality or gregariousness to keep the person engaged, but I'm doing it now at the detriment of actually engaging with them with what I want them to be focused on. So it might feel like I'm connecting, and I probably am, but it's at a detriment to my actual objective, and it's usually because I'm underprepared and leaning on a characteristic rather than my homework. So 
Uh, I'm also a bit of a people pleaser and that also works against me if I'm feeling anxious or nervous and I'm just trying to make the doctor like me. That's not very helpful. So no, you absolutely do not need to have an outgoing personality. You need to know yourself and you need to be honest with yourself about who you are so that you can be the best advocate that you are. We're all different and, and how we advocate, how we tell our story, how we move forward it's different for each of us. So make sure that you're honest with yourself first and foremost, and don't let things like, oh, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not outgoing. I'm not comfortable. Don't let those things become strong narratives. And you know, don't, don't fortify those neural pathways, right? Don't keep telling yourself that story because we tell ourselves these stories and they become true because we tell ourselves these stories. You can be an amazing advocate. You can be a phenomenal storyteller. You just need to find out what works for you and just be honest with yourself about that. Do you have a story in your memory of when you were unsuccessful with advocating, in particular, maybe even in a physician's room? Is there uh, a memory you have of something that you would have loved to have gone back and done better? Yeah, the, the memory I have of a time where I could have done better as an advocate was when I moved to California and I had a bunch of issues with the health insurance company and hospital group and pharmacy. It's all one, this particular collective. And my advocacy efforts resulted in meetings with higher-ups at this company to really get into it. But I don't think I was prepared enough to speak my truth. And I let some of the people-pleasing and patriarchal-minded ways of operating kind of take over. And when I had an opportunity to restate my story, restate certain points, be really honest with people who are hard to reach and have decision-making abilities, in my opinion, I came up short. I was able to get what I needed and I was fine. And I know of some changes that happened to their process and procedure immediately and in the time since that go back to what happened. And that's nice. But I just know if I had been a little bit better about what is my objective? What am I here to do? What are my needs? What do I need from my listener? If I actually took the time to ask myself those questions and didn't get as overwhelmed with, oh my goodness, I'm actually making some traction here. And now I'm sitting in front of people who can really make a difference. I think I, would, I just would have been more effective. Would you have any other words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom for other patients or caregivers um, that might be listening to the podcast if they've been hesitant to share their story in any way? Don't underestimate the power of your story. We, that's how we learn. That's how we grow as people. We grow from people's stories. Our lived experience is I now get paid to share lived experience. That's my job. It's valuable. It's very valuable. Don't ever dismiss your life your experience and share it because you might teach somebody else something or uh, somebody could be another PKD could have a bit of a slight temperature and they just ignore it but you've then said no don't ignore it go and see somebody go to your emergency room or take it seriously and that could be life-saving and it could be just a temperature so really you yeah share your story be brave and bold Tell us a little bit about your book, uh, Walking My Path, Building Memories. What was that like writing it? What was that like engaging with that part of, of your life? I think like most authors, as soon as you write it, you change everything. <laughs> but 
I think that's like anyone in the arts, though. You create something and it doesn't matter what kind of art form it is. You create it, you want to change it, but it's out there. Look, it was, some people say writing your story is cathartic. I don't know if I found it cathartic or just something to do. (laughs) I just, I felt had to, there was just, there is so much to my story. And when people learn the depth of it, it's quite overwhelming And so when I share my entire story, often people, the reaction is people will cry or um, they will be shocked. And I actually found people's reactions quite overwhelming when I was talking about it. I guess for me, writing it down and going through that process helped me to understand how other people feel about learning about my story. And when I wrote it down, it is a lot. I was born with an incredibly rare blood disease. And then long story short, I got married young, had kids young. My kid's dad died of bowel cancer. Four years later, I'm in the ICU and I lost a leg. So my children have been through so much trauma themselves, but we've come through the other end and life is amazing and we live every minute to the absolute most that we can and changes how we make decisions in our lives and how we um, treat people and and how we value things as well. So, yeah, it's a great process uh, if anyone wants to do it, even if you just write a diary. It's really great to get some stories down. But, yeah, I guess I did learn a lot too, reflecting back. To go back, you you mentioned in the beginning, but to kind of bring it full circle, are there steps that you can offer our listeners in terms of beginning to build their stories and to start thinking about how they communicate to those around them where they, they need something, a, a provider or even a family member or somebody that could make a systematic change? What steps can you offer our listeners in terms of beginning to build their stories? I'm glad you mentioned family member in that question too, because again, we're telling our story or a version of it anyway anyway, to different people at different times for different reasons. And sometimes even within my own family, getting into the specifics of my disease and how it's managed and what I need isn't very effective. And even within my own family, I may need to generalize things a little bit more or try to relate to them based on something I know they've experienced in order to connect on a point. So again, it just goes back to, Who's your audience? Who's your audience? Number one, what are you seeking to accomplish from sharing your story? If you just need to be heard, and that's a very human thing, and that's fine, that's good, and you should seek an audience for that. But I think if we're if we're talking about how to prepare for, say, a doctor's visit, right? Well, then what do you need to accomplish? What isn't working for you? What stories from your life, what moments day to day are indicative of a problem that you're facing that maybe doesn't come up in a measurement or a blood draw, right? Is there something that happens when you get out of bed in the morning or when you're brushing your teeth or every time you go to get out of the car? Are there these little moments day-to-day, activities of daily life, ADLs, that you find are um, in some way influenced by your condition? Make little notes of that. But what if you think those moments don't matter? What what if they're, it's like, this is how you live your life every single day and what, what are you gonna do? They do matter. And you need to make notes of them. And if you're questioning, is this normal? Does everyone experience this? Well, then ask some of your friends who don't have this condition. Is this something you experience? And if they do too, it still doesn't mean it's necessarily okay to tolerate. Perhaps there's trends that are just not okay and we should be dealing with them. But it might help suggest that it's not something specific to the condition. And that's helpful. 
Um, but they do matter. If they're experience, if you're experiencing things that are upsetting to you in your day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month life, it matters regardless of what it stems from. But something that I think is important is that we don't overlook the ways in which these rare diseases can have some insidious role to play in disruptions to our life where the disease is maybe not so overt. Sometimes it's much quieter. It's this sense of self-doubt. It's this anxiety that I'm not going to be able to make it to that thing, or I'm going to have to pull out, or I'm not going to have the energy, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to, that's connected to the disease too. Even though it's not, you know, something that would present in a clinical outcome, it's connected to the disease. But again, if you don't take the time to acknowledge that your experience matters, make a little note of it, and then bring it into that clinic's room, because the doctor wasn't there, doctor wasn't with you in the car when you're trying to get out of the car, doctor wasn't with you brushing your teeth, doctor doesn't know unless you tell the doctor. And even if they question it, and they might, or if they push back and say, well, that's, you know, that sounds like a mental thing. Maybe that's, it sounds like it's in your head. It's not connected to the, they can be wrong too. Human beings, we retain the right to be wrong, even doctors. So the more that you are clear on what your experience is and what your needs are, and my, and speaking from my experience, the clearer I am about what my needs are, the clearer I can state those needs, the clearer I can make my ask, the more obvious it becomes if the person that I'm speaking to isn't getting it, doesn't believe me, or is just in one way, shape, or form not aligned. And then I have to think about, okay, well, you know, if it's, again, case of a doctor, do I need to seek another doctor, a second opinion? Maybe. Do I need to try to phrase this differently? Do I need to restate my point and just try to use some different language because it didn't come across well the first time? Like, what happens next may be one of a number of things, but what absolutely matters is what your experience is and the fact that it is taken into consideration by the medical professionals who are responsible for treating you. Patrick, if our listeners want to follow you on social media or just um, follow some of your career and journey, where can they find you? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm uh, most active on Twitter and my handle there is at PJ Lynch. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, Patrick James Lynch, which is my full name, but a little less active on those places. Uh, You can also hear me along with Amy Board on the Bloodstream podcast comes out twice a month. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Bianca, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. If listeners want to um, follow you, follow your work, where can they find you? On social media or on your website? Yes. So the website is just biancabassett.com.au. I'm on Instagram, biancabassett12. It is, I think. Yeah, on Facebook. So send me a friend request if you like and just send me a little message. Let me know who you are and love to have a chat if anyone's got any questions or feel free to get in contact. Thank you so much for joining us on Just Listen, the voices of PK deficiency. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking with you again.